So, uh, we're going to read the next bit of John's Gospel, which is John chapter 18, uh, verses 15 to 27. Uh, If you're journeying with us here at SGT, you'll know that we've been reading our way through John's Gospel for quite a while now, and um, with various interruptions along the way. So, during Lent, uh, we're reading now these chapters leading up to, and including uh, the crucifixion, the arrest, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, which is a bit unusual for Lent. But often I find in when we get to Holy Week, there's too much material and not enough time. Uh, and if you don't come uh, to the Holy Week services that we have uh, every day because of work or other commitments you're not able to, then the chances are that what you do, what the church often does, is that it journeys from uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then the following Sunday, we're all about the resurrection. And if you don't go to any Easter services between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, then you're entirely going to miss out uh, on the story of the most important part, if you like. Not that the resurrection is not the most absolutely wonderful part of the story. So, Uh, We're going to look at the the journey to the cross over these Sundays during Lent so that we don't neglect the most important part. So we're at John chapter 18, and today we're going to read verses 15 to 27, um, Peter's first and second denials and the high priest questioning Jesus. The words will appear, or the, the, the passage will appear up there in the screens behind me. If you want to borrow a Bible so you can follow along later on, if you haven't got one on a device and you want a paper one in front of you, come and borrow one from a table in front. We have freedom of movement in here, so don't feel nervous about getting up to go and get one. <clears throat> John 18 and verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold. And the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Amen. May God bless his reading to our understanding.
I wonder how many different people and personalities uh, we are. Just one, you say. Well, I'm not sure that that's entirely true, is it? I wonder uh, how consistent you are or we are uh, as individuals given different places. I always used to smile a little when I phoned my mother because she would answer with what I call her telephone voice, which was just a nudge or two better than the way she normally speaks. Uh, And once she knew that it was one of us, she would quickly revert. But you'd just get a moment of the telephone voice, the voice that was reserved for uh, other people in case they were people that needed to be spoken to slightly more politely. All of us are quite capable when we move through different spheres and circles in our lives of being slightly different versions of the same us, right? We might be slightly different versions depending on who we're with, uh, depending on whether it's a work context or a church context, whether it's a family context or whether it's a stranger on the bus context. We are different versions of the same us. And of course, depending on how stressed you are and depending on what else is going on in your life, then you're not exactly going to present entirely as the same person. Context shapes who we are and how we respond and how we behave. And when we think about this uh, passage that we looked at today, context suddenly becomes everything. I was just imagining, idly imagining, that that just supposing Jesus Himself were here in St. George's Tron in the flesh, and that an angry mob came and hauled Him off, an angry mob of, of humanists or secularists or whatever. You make up whichever angry mob. You can give them as many torches and pitchforks as you like, and they drag Jesus off to George Square where there's an even angrier mob uh, railing around him. I wonder, and I can only speak for myself, but you see, I'm quite willing and and open about my faith and my relationship with Jesus in here. Of course I am. I'm the minister. But you are too, right? Because you just sang all those songs. And we've just said and sung and prayed and agreed all of those things. But of course, I put myself out in the angry mob in George Square where someone turns to me and says, are you one of that lot? And I ask myself what I'd say. Because context shapes who we are and how we behave and how we respond. And a lot of that has to do, of course, with our own survival. I was really interested just looking at this little passage and and these moments of denial which sandwich Jesus' interrogation by Annas. Somewhat confusingly, both Annas and Caiaphas are referred to as the high priest. Annas, as we know, was Caiaphas' father-in-law and uh, the high priest before him, and, and therefore still carried some of the gravitas and the statesmanship. It's a bit like a kind of um, former prime minister or ex-president or whatever. In the Church of Scotland, it might be an ex-former moderator. There's still a certain status that attaches to that individual. So we have these, this bookend episode where we're told it's like a kind of movie where there's a kind of cut to. You're cutting between scenes. And it begins with the scene in the courtyard, and then it cuts to what's going on inside, and then it cuts back to what's going on 
outside again. But of course, context is everything. It's literally only a matter of hours at this point, since Peter and all of the others were indoors enjoying a Passover meal with all of the familiarity and the security of being amongst friends, like-minded people, people who see things the same way. Passover itself, as we've seen as we've gone along, is a, is a family meal. It's a place for community. And so there was a sense of safety, of being in a safe place, of being together where it seems under those circumstances that it's going to be easy. <laughs> it's going to be easy to stand for Jesus and to stand up for Jesus, partly because they don't know what's coming, and partly because when you're surrounded in that situation, when everything around you is telling you that this is uh, that you're you're on the up. You're with Jesus. He's unstoppable. Lazarus is fresh out of the grave. The advance of the kingdom and the power that Jesus is demonstrating is unstoppable. I don't know what tomorrow will look like for you when you're no longer surrounded by other people who are here because they share your faith, or at the very least, or whatever are inquiring or exploring. But at least this is a context and a place in which it is safe to own your faith. In fact, it's not just safe, it's, it's, it's wanted, it's desired, it's the purpose, it's why we come here. To worship and to declare our faith and to reveal our identity as Christian disciples to one another. But of course, the challenge is always what happens between Sundays or between gatherings, isn't it? outside of the context. And there's a lot that we're going to look at here that will just make us recognize wearily our own propensity for being double-minded, inconsistent, fickle, unreliable disciples who will run with a fox and hunt with the hounds. Will we? That was Peter's learning and dilemma anyway. That's the big question in all of this. There's a lot in here that has to do with, with, with uh, what is secret or kept secret and what is open and what is known and transparent. That's the theme of the whole passage. Let's get to the passage then. And let's just look and, and work out what was going on here. Because we're told that Simon Peter and another disciple. Now, when John refers to another disciple, we don't know for absolute certainty, but it's very often the case in John that he's talking about himself. More often than not, in John's gospel, John will say something like, the disciple Jesus loved <laughs> And, and most uh, commentators reckon that that's John talking about himself. Whether it was John or whether it was another disciple, what we learn is that Peter did not go alone to the courtyard of Annas the high priest. And actually what we learn is that the disciple that he went with, let's just say it's John, okay, just to save me a few words every time I say that. 
Let's just call him John. Maybe it was another John. Simon Peter went with John to the courtyard of Annas the high priest. John already had a connection. John somehow was known to the high priest. We're not told how or why. And it might well be because John was a fisherman from Galilee that it was another disciple who was a Jerusalem disciple who did have connections. But this other disciple, John, let's say, went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, and Peter's left outside at the door. Okay? Got the picture? So the other disciple's gone in because he's got, he's got a pass card. He's somehow he's got, he's got entry by recognition. He's known at the door. And then that other disciple comes back. There's a servant girl. Interestingly, all of the Gospels, they all have it slightly differently, but they all have a girl, a servant girl, as one of the people that interrogates Peter. It's not insignificant that it's a servant girl. This servant girl's job was to guard the gate. She was a gatekeeper. Because the courtyard of the high priest, you didn't just let, you didn't just let, you know, anybody in. They had security. So she's doing door security. She's not necessarily wearing a black uniform, but she's doing door security at the gate, the entrance, to keep out undesirables, to keep out people who by their appearance or clothing clearly don't have the standing or status just to walk into the high priest's courtyard. So she's doing door security, and because she's female and a servant, she's about as low in the social order, sorry, but that's just the reality, she's about as low in the social order as it's possible to get. In other words, she does not constitute a threat. And so the servant girl on duty, the other disciple speaks to her and brings Peter in. And so it's under those circumstances that Peter is going in. He's going in with somebody else. He's going into a situation, and I don't know about you, but, you know, I, if I'm going somewhere, I, you know, a party, a meeting, a conference, it doesn't matter. You know, if it's a bunch of strangers, you scan the room. Is there anyone I know? Is there anyone I know? Is there anybody else going? Can we go in together? Because it's much easier to go in together than to go in to a place that you don't know on your own, where you might not know anyone. And so John, sorry, Peter is not going in on his own, nor is he going into a place that hasn't already been cased. <laughs> the other disciple went in and had a look first. So the other disciple went in, cased the joint, was in a position to know that it was safe enough inside and came to fetch Peter in with him. Now, the slave girl says what? You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Too. What does that tell you? It tells you that the slave girl knew that the other one was a disciple. So she knew that there was at least one disciple passing through, had passed through that gate. And so, if she knew that the other disciple was a disciple, sorry if I'm laboring the point, but if she knew that the other disciple was a disciple, then it's entirely realistic 
to suppose that the pal of the disciple is going to be a disciple too. They're pals. Why am I laboring the point? Because actually this was a lot easier for Peter than it needed to be or than it might otherwise have been. Peter was not alone. He was not going into a place that hadn't already been checked out. It was kind of futile to deny being a disciple because his friend was clearly known as a disciple already. And she was one of the least influential or important people within the walls of that courtyard. And yet, still, Peter, when asked, said, I am not. Here's a quick question, just a little tangential thought. Which of the three denials do you think was the easiest for Peter to make? Which of the three denials do you think was easiest for Peter to make? I reckon the third. I reckon the third. Because I reckon the first time you deny, or the first time you do something that goes against your conscience, or the first time you do something that you know you shouldn't do, that's when it really strikes you, right? Second time's a little easier. Third time's alarmingly easy. And it just keeps on getting easier from there, doesn't it? Peter is trying to hide in a place of secrecy. Why? Self-preservation. Why wouldn't you? In order to make sure that he wasn't going to risk his life, perhaps. Hold those thoughts. Because whilst Peter is being questioned by the lowest-ranking person present, Jesus is inside being questioned by the highest-ranking person. At the absolute other end of the scale is Annas, who is father-in-law of the high priest and therefore even has authority over the high priest himself, having been a former high priest. I don't know which circles you move in through the week, and maybe you move uh, amongst circles where there are people who are uh, really influential and important and significant, or people who are not, in the eyes of the world, particularly influential, significant, or important. But what's interesting is that this little encounter seems to straddle both ends of the spectrum. We'll see that as we go on. Jesus has questioned about his disciples and his teaching, his influence and his message. And he's questioned at night. And he's questioned, this is kind of a preliminary hearing. And it's illegal. Because he wasn't supposed to put somebody even on a preliminary trial by night or without the opportunity for witnesses to be there and for Jesus to have a proper defense. It's a bit like not having your lawyer present. Not that I have great experience of that, but you do have a right to have a lawyer present if you're arrested and taken to the station for questioning. You're entitled to have somebody there present. 
And so while Peter was keeping secret the fact that he was a disciple for his own safety and preservation, here at the other end of the social scale, at the scale of prestige and influence, we have Annas, the high priest, conducting a secret investigation by night. Why? Self-preservation. Because this Jesus has become too important. This Jesus has become too powerful. This Jesus has become too significant. This Jesus constitutes a threat to the status quo. This Jesus might lead to a rebellion or an uprising or another revolt. It might lead to the Romans banning their expression of religion, in which case Annas and Caiaphas would lose everything. Self-preservation. And while Peter keeps it secret in the hope that he won't be discovered, and Annas conducts his secret inquiry in the hope that he can quietly get rid of this problem by any means possible, Jesus' response in all of that is one of absolute openness. I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. I want to go back just a little bit. Before this trial, such as it was, before this arrest, before Judas pitched up with uh, his posse of soldiers from the temple guard, and although John doesn't record Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the other gospel writers do, and we know from John that he did pray in John chapter 17, an extensive prayer. It's just not the Gethsemane prayer of anguish. So, what we know is that Jesus had spent time in prayer with His Father, praying for the disciples, praying for those who would come to believe, praying for you and me. And in Gethsemane, He spent time praying to find the place where He could accept the cup that the Father was setting before Him. And do you remember from the other Gospels, not John, what the other three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were taken in to the garden and taken quite close to where, Peter, where Jesus was praying. Do you remember what Jesus asked them to do? He said, pray and keep watch so that you will not fall into temptation. He said, pray and keep watch so that you will not fall into temptation. And what did they do? Fell asleep. Three times. I've just been thinking about the connections between those two. How was it that Jesus, under arrest before the most religiously influential and important person, could speak with openness and confidence and without any apparent fear, with an unchallengeable logic that all of His teaching was done in the open, and that there were plenty of people who knew what he had said and what he had done. He was, it seems, absolutely fearless. Now, you could say, well, yes, he was the Son of God, so he had extra power. No. 
He was the Son of Man. Yes, He was the Son of God, absolutely. But Jesus relied absolutely and utterly on the Father and the relationship that He developed and sustained with Him as a man on earth. What's my point? My point is that Jesus was able to fix His eyes on the Father, to fix His eyes on the road that had been set before Him, was able to be open and unafraid, was able to testify before the most powerful or influential person because he'd just come from the place of prayer. He'd just come from the place of being in the presence of his Father. He had just come from the place where he had refocused his heart, his perspective, his life, had brought his will into submission, had brought himself completely to the place of knowing the Father and the call in his life, and of receiving in that place of prayer the strengthening of angels, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and all the resources that he would need to go through what was going to happen. By contrast, Peter, James, and John fell asleep and did not pray or watch and did fall into temptation. I wonder, had Peter been in that place? And I, I don't wonder so much for Peter because I think this was a, a journey of brokenness and, and humbling that Peter had to walk same of all of us who boldly start out on the Christian way saying, I will follow you forever, Lord, and then discover within a day or two how prone to stumbling and falling and getting it wrong we are. Peter is our hero because he gets it wrong, and we can look at him and say, thank the Lord for Peter. He gives me hope. But I do wonder about my opening illustration, that if I would be better equipped to stand up and say, do you know what? I belong to Jesus. Take me if you must in George Square or any other place if I've come fresh from the place of the presence of the Father. For Peter, the ante was increasingly upped. The next question came from a group of people this time, people who were slightly more important and more in the know. These were, as far as we can tell, because Peter was still standing there warming himself, so he's at the fire, and we know that the fire had been made by servants and officials who stood around the fire that they had made. And so there's a group of servants and officials. These are more important people. And these are the ones, not this lowly servant, the bottom of the heap socially, this is the servants and officials now who are asking him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? Same question. They could see the guy that was there with them, John or the other one. And still he denied it, the pressure increasing. And thirdly, one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? What does that tell us? It tells us that this guy was also in the garden with, let's just call him Cousin Malchus, as part of the same detachment. 
We saw last week that Malchus, in all probability, was the guy who was in charge of the soldiers. He was the, he was the leader of the delegation sent from the, from, from the, 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 the high priest's guard. So now we've got a guy who is a relative who saw his cousin getting his ear chopped off by someone. No, it was dark. It was torchlight. But I reckon if I saw my cousin getting his ear lopped off, I would trace the bloody sword and the hand holding it back to the man that was holding it because I'd want to know who just lopped the ear off my cousin. So I'd be pretty sure that that looks very like the guy who lopped my cousin's ear off in the garden. And so from a servant girl with no power and no testimony, through some officials who were slightly more uh, of a voice, because there were several of them, to the man who was a relative of the man who got injured by Peter, the fingers are pointing all the more, and still he denies it, because the third time's easy. The third time's easy. What can we take from all of this? We live in a climate of anxiety and stress. We're living in a world at the moment that is in absolute panic. If it's not climate change or Brexit, it's coronavirus. If it's not any of them, it's terrorism or global markets crashing, you name it. The world is in absolute turmoil. It's in absolute turmoil, of course, largely because it has lost sight of that which a generation ago they kept sight of. You know, there are some stirring moments in the public broadcasts of the world wars, stirring broadcasts from prime ministers and kings calling people to faith and to prayer, to put their trust in God, to believe that God would be with us and on our side And a call to a nation to lift up its eyes and to recognize that no, we cannot control our fate or our circumstances. All we can do is cast ourselves upon God. Would you expect to hear such a broadcast today with respect to coronavirus or climate change? Would you expect to hear uh, a prime minister or a president anywhere saying, we cannot control the climate. We have messed it up. We must simply come back to the God who made this world and ask His forgiveness and ask Him to restore it. No, you would not. We trust scientists nowadays, and they're powerless. We cannot control an epidemic of disease. Our lives are in God's hands. Would you expect to hear it? No, because we trust the NHS or the healthcare or the WHO or whatever, because It's all in our hands now, right? And in our independence or our arrogance, our self-sufficiency, we've lost sight of the power and the place that can only be found in the presence of God and casting ourselves upon Him in prayer. Anxiety is there because faith is not. He has not given you a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Instead, he gives you the spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. The world is utterly captive to fear, panic, and anxiety. As the world in Peter's world 
was suddenly captive to fear and panic and anxiety because he couldn't see what was happening, and this was all overwhelming and frightening, and he'd missed his prayer time. Three times he missed it. And because of that, when he was caught on the hop in the moment, and it was ramped up from the least powerful to the most likely person to know, three times he denied that he even knew Jesus because he didn't have the inner resolve or confidence, the perspective, the clarity of spirit. Call it what you will. Whatever it is that happens to us when we spend time with God in prayer and allow our perspective on the world and on what's going on to be refocused and reshaped in that place of prayer. We rely on our own understanding We rush and pressurize to find vaccines or ways to reverse climate change and all of these other things. I don't know if any of the rest of you saw it, but uh, James Faddis, who um, is a pastor up at Bishop Briggs Community Church, was speaking this past week in the Scottish Parliament during Time for Reflection. And unashamedly, he's a great guy, isn't he? heart of an evangelist, but unashamedly, sharing his testimony of how the only way that his life was rescued and turned back from addiction to heroin and criminal behavior and activity and a whole life of disaster was through Jesus Christ. And he put it in a way that wasn't uh, inappropriate, but neither did he hold back his testimony, and he just shared with the Scottish Parliament that actually it's Jesus Christ that makes a difference. Not scientists, not politicians, no amount of conventions or conferences, no amount of strategizing, no amount of international global cooperation to solve the climate change problems or coronavirus will actually bring life transformation. Only Jesus does that. And so when you go out of this building, how will you go out? And perhaps more critically, who will you become? the same person that you are in here, who will I become? And how will I fuel? How will I create the capacity in my own heart and mind and spirit to be able to say, yes, I am one of Jesus' disciples in whatever company I find myself or whatever situation I face? And how will we go through when the world and the BBC and all the other news and social media outlets will be bombarding us with messages of fear and panic and alarm to be able to hold fast in amongst all of that and to say, I put my life in the Lord's hands. I mean, I don't find these things easy either, just in case you think I've got it sussed. But I know it's what we have to do. And so I challenge you to do it. And I expect you to challenge me to do it. Let's pray.